Well, in general, the Southeast Asian nations, you know, have a very ambivalent and complex relationship with China. On the one hand, you know, a nation of China's size and power is bound to produce a certain amount of suspicion and concern. Now, of course, you know, especially that's especially the case when one considers the recent history of Chinese engagement with the region, going back to the Cold War, particularly when when the, the government of Mao Zedong was promoting communism across the region, often through armed struggle. Um, and seeking to overthrow many of the governments. Hello, everyone. This is Meng Fei Li from Beijing, China, and welcome to our brand new episode of The Missing Piece. Today, Southeast Asia stands uniquely exposed to the waxing power of the new China. Three of its nation border, China, and five are directly impacted by its claim over the South China Sea. All dwell in the lengthening shadow of influence, economic, political, military, and cultural. As China seeks to restore its former status as Asia's preeminent power, the countries of Southeast Asia face an increasingly stark choice: flourish Beijing's orbit or languish outside of it. Will China's rise bring threat to the world, or especially to the nations in Southeast Asia? And how much the nations in Asia still really rely on China under the One Belt One Road Initiative? Join our show today is one distinguished and honorable author and international journalist, Sebastian Strangio. Sebastian is a journalist and author focusing on Southeast Asia. And currently works as Southeast Asia editor at the Diplomat. In 2008, he began his career as a reporter at the Fandom Post in Cambodia, and has then traveled and reported extensively across the ten nations of ASEAN, paying special attention to the impact of China's growing power. Sebastian's writing has appeared in leading publications, including Foreign Affairs, Los Angeles Review of Books. The Atlantic and the New York Times. Sebastian, welcome to my show. Thanks for having me, Mungfei. Absolutely, Sebastian. Now we know that you have a new book just came out, and before we get to the book, I want to ask you. Recently, the Foreign Minister Wang Yi started his first trip in the year of 2021, and he's going to go through multiple city, a、uh, multiple countries like Brunei and、uh, Cambodia and etc. Why do you think it's so important for him to represent the Chinese government to visit these small nations at the beginning of the year? How significant do you think it's going to be? Well, I think this visit, you know, is you know intended to shore up、um, important relationships in Southeast Asia,、um, relationships that are very important for the government in Beijing, and you know the timing of this also suggests that.、Um, Foreign Minister Wang Yi is trying to get in ahead of the incoming Biden administration. The ignore in the inauguration of President-elect Biden on the twentieth of this month.、Um, so I, you know, I interpret these sorts of visits, and this follows a, a previous Southeast Asian tour that Wang Yi undertook in October. In total, he has visited nine of the ten ASEAN nations. Between those two visits,、um, you know, I interpret this visit as as sort of diplomatic.、Um, Uh, maintenance, in a sense, you know,、mm. checking in with、um, you know、uh, nations in the region、um, and communicating, you know, China's 
willingness to help out on, on um, COVID-19 really mm. particularly, uh, as well as pushing forward broader Chinese strategic objectives in the region. You see, before a Biden administration fully comes to picture, that the, the relationship between U.S. and China has been in this very difficult position. And of course, that with a, a, a rhetoric from President Trump, that China was being portrayed as this threat to the world, not only from this political standpoint, but also from this economic standpoint. So to you is, today, do you think that nations in Southeast Asia, they really trust that China is going to become their big resources for their own growth? Because we know that there are still a lot more countries in Southeast Asia, they are still having this doubt that China's rights, it's not going to be directly related to their own development. So what is your take on this? Well, in general, the Southeast Asian nations, you know, have a very ambivalent and complex relationship with China. On the one hand, you know, a nation of China's size and power is bound to produce a certain amount of suspicion and concern. Now, of course, you know, especially that's especially the case when one considers the recent history of Chinese engagement with the region, going back to the Cold War, particularly when, when the, the government of Mao Zedong was promoting communism across the region, often through armed struggle, um, and seeking to overthrow many of the governments of the region. And of course, the founding of ASEAN in 1967 was specifically designed to um, forge a, a, a common unity amongst the five nations that then constituted ASEAN you know, against Chinese communist subversion. Um, and, and China's rise has sort of brought a lot of these sort of dormant uh, memories about that era, and, and of course previous eras, um, uh, back into the minds of many people in Southeast Asia. But, but, you know, running parallel with this is, you know, the fact that China has become economically integrated with Southeast Asia to an extent that has no historical parallel. Um, the two regions have traded for, you know, um, centuries, but the you know, the, the degree of the integration and the, and the volumes of trade are, are now at unprecedented levels. And this, of course, makes, you know, um, you know, geographic proximity and the concomitant economic entanglements um, have, you know, given Southeast Asian nations a very strong stake in China's future stability and prosperity. Um, you know, uh, Southeast Asians remember well that during times of internal upheaval within China, mm. you know, the fall of dynasties, civil wars, etc., um, you know, these periods have often translated into destabilizing flows of people to the south, uh, whether that was at the end of the Ming dynasty or um, when the nationalist regime of Chiang Kai-shek fell in 1949 and, and, and his armies um, crossed from Yunnan province into um, Burma and then proceeded to, you know, destabilize that region's politics for the, for the for a generation and so yeah I think that there's a there's a there's a very you know the region views China in a very complex way I mean it fears its power but it also is reliant upon its economy um, and you know in that tension lies the essence of the two regions relationship well Sebastian I was fortunate enough to visit Vietnam when I was working as an international news reporter back in uh, I believe 2006, 16, or 17. And then I scan around the city, and from um, Ho Chi Minh City to Hanoi, and I talk to a lot more experts, and including the local uh, citizens, and asking their view of, uh, on China. Now, 
one of the buzzword or one of the sensitive topic that came up naturally regarding the South China Sea. Now keep that in mind. Philippines, uh, uh, President Rodriguez Duterte had this kind of this back and forth and this limbo attitude towards China on this critical matter. Now, but going back to Southeast Asia, without solving the issue of South China Sea, and I think that could be a major hindrance for China to continue this positive or this healthful relationship with some of the countries, because ultimately some nations are still much more, I mean, bitter about this matter, right? Because China, it seems like, hey, you just took over this. And meanwhile, we need to acknowledge what the International Tribunal Court has already made the decision. So, Sebastian, do you think that the, the countries there are going to overlook the South China Sea and because that China is going to help them in this long run, especially under this One Belt, One Road initiative? Well, there has been, you know, this has put um, the claimant states, um, the Southeast Asian claimant states in the South China Sea in a difficult position because, you know, each of them relies quite heavily on China economically. Mm. It has, you know, very fruitful trade and investment ties. In the case of the Philippines and Indonesia, which not a formal claimant state, but still has frictions with China right. in, in parts of the South China Sea, um, both of these nations have, have embraced the Belt and Road Initiative, at least in rhetoric, um, and see it as a very valuable tool for um, developing the nation's infrastructure, which in both cases is sorely lacking. Uh, so, you know, th there is... You know, but but I don't think that the you know the allure of, of, of Chinese financing and support in this regard um, has assuaged um, the concerns that these nations have, particularly the security and defense establishments of these nations about um, the you know the the threats to their sovereignty um, that are posed by China's claims, and so you know we see a sort of you know I think that the Southeast Asian states have actually been quite um, canny at quarantining the maritime and territorial disputes from more productive parts of the bilateral relationship with China. And so, you know, in the case of, of, of Vietnam, you see, you know, a very uh, you know, strident opposition on the part of the Vietnamese government and even mm. more strident opposition on the part of the Vietnamese people toward China and particularly its, its actions in the South China Sea. But we also see that the, you know, the trade continues to flow and that, um, you know, things would have to get pretty bad before um, that fruitful relationship was disrupted. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, most Southeast Asian governments are pragmatic, and they, they, they are trying their best to sort of maintain the positive elements of the relationship with China, or the beneficial elements, um, while holding the line and deterring China from, um, or pushing back against China's claims, um, with the support of other external governments, such as the United States, Japan, etc., etc. Mm. Well, Sebastian, last year, we know that because of the pandemic, and everything had to be put online. And also in the same year that Chinese President Xi Jinping had multiple teleconference with the leadership in, in Southeast Asia. Now, the next question I want to ask you is, from your perspective, because the pandemic that, uh, according to the, uh, the source of the U.S., to say China actually started this pandemic or China you know, tried to cover up and try to hide the secret and until the, the cat has to be out of the bag, but anyway, so from your perspective, how do you think this pandemic, or if if this pandemic has changed some of the perspective about the Chinese government or Chinese leadership under Xi Jinping from the uh, from 
the perspective of all the leaders in Southeast Asia. In other words, do you think that today the, the, the head of the governments from Southeast Asia, they still could trust Chinese government to handle or even to um, tr being truthful and being honest regarding the, some of the critical informations. I don't mean just pandemic, but from this, again, from this political or economic standpoint. Mm. Well, I think the, you know, in the initial stages of the pandemic, um, you know, uh, there were many concerns in Southeast Asia about um, what happened in China that allowed this virus to escape. And, and there were a lot of, you know, a lot of governments wanted answers as to, you know, what had happened. Um, and of course, given Southeast Asia's connections with China, its economic connections, its, its, its connect transport connections, you know, um, there, at the time it looked as if the pandemic could devastate Southeast mm. Asia. Now, of course, it, it has had obviously horrible, you know, significant effects in the region. But, you know, it's surprising the extent to which nations like Thailand Thailand particularly had the first documented case outside of China. Mm. Um, was were still able to to, to you know um, effectively contain uh, the virus, at least you know to at least to a much greater extent than than some other nations. Um, and so, you know, but what we've seen over time, I think, is you know this this mistrust has sort of slowly been overtaken by an awareness that you know the public health impacts. Um, or, or the, the restrictions and lockdowns necessary to contain the virus are going to create a huge economic crisis for the region, which is very likely to domino into political crises, mm. just as the Asian financial crisis did. And so, you know, there's a dawning awareness that China is going to be a very important um, partner for the region as it seeks to sort of drag itself out of this slump. Um, I think that China's been helped by its you know, what appears to be a fairly effective containment strategy, which has stopped the spread of COVID-19 within China and enabled the country to get its economy going again. And China's also been helped by the fact that, you know, Western governments in Europe and the United States particularly have handled the pandemic so badly. I think that that has, if it hasn't burnished China's style of management, it has certainly undermined the sort of, the, the, the you know, um, or punctured the illusion of competence um, of Western countries, and sort of underlined, um, you know, the, the you know the, the idea that Asian countries, you know, are better at handling this, whether they're democratic states like Taiwan mm. or or authoritarian ones like China and Vietnam. Um, and you know, I think that ultimately COVID nineteen is reinforcing sort of the fundamental geographic reality um, for Southeast Asia, which is that China lives close by. Um, you know, its its proximity makes it, you know, a sort of unavoidable partner for the region as it seeks to drag itself out of the economic slump and to tackle what remains of the public health challenges. Um, you know, there's a lot of water to go into the bridge, and, and I think a lot is hanging on how effective the Chinese-made vaccines um, turn out to be, and there's been some debate about that over the last few days, given some of the new data which has come in from t uh, trials in Brazil, which shows that the, the Sinovac biotech vaccine might be less effective than previously claimed but you know you know it is it is unsurprising to me that many southeast asian countries are turning to china for access to vaccines for you know um you know trade and investment that will help them recover economically from the pandemic and so i think that you know this has just underscored the you know the the the, the fundamental structural condition of china southeast asia relations which is geographic proximity well, Sebastian, you mentioned 
that a lot more countries, they're looking for better partnership and they're looking for vaccines uh, from the Chinese government. And again, they're looking for this big help. But meanwhile, I'm not sure if you noticed that in China, the second phase of the pandemic slowly just started to pop up again. Again, and if you read the news, multiple cities near Beijing, I mean Hebei or, or other uh, close-by cities, have this strict lockdown. So in other words, this is an interesting question is, let's just follow your thoughts. They're looking for solution and they're looking for partnership with China. But meanwhile, China is currently dealing with the crisis again, but may, may not as big as the first one. How do you think China is going to balance the relationship? So in other words, if I can't really take care of the mess in my house, how am I able to distribute additional resources or additional wisdom to help with my neighbors? Don't you think I should really place my countries as a priority instead of helping others? And doesn't that create a distance with other countries? Because they're, they're not going to wait, right? They are going to look for solutions. Like, for example, as you mentioned, Thailand. And I talked to someone from um, um, Indonesia. And they are all looking. And you have to find a way to, to really support yourself before really actually depending on someone. Sure, sure. That's, that's you know, one of the things that COVID has proven, you know, um, is that, you know, all victories over this virus so far have been fleeting. You know, you could you can have a successful containment strategy that in a number of days can be, you know, wiped out by a, a big outbreak, which, you know, is actually something that we've seen in Thailand over the mm. past few weeks um, with uh, outbreaks centered on the communities of migrant workers, um, you know, uh, that are, you know, that are, that are employed in the fishing industry there. So, you know, you know, every victory in, until the final victory over over, over this virus, you know, uh, if, assuming one comes, you know, there's always going to be the risk of new outbreaks and new lockdowns, and and I think that you know China's gains in this regard are fragile, just as everyone's are. Um, you know, the Chinese government has shown that it you know ha has the ability to shut these things down, and and generally, you know, um, given how important. China's management of this pandemic is to its the perception of its international, you know, its perception of its rise internationally. I predict that they're going to throw everything they can at this and use whatever measures they have at their disposal to contain it. Um, and so I predict that they probably will succeed in that regard. Mm. Um, but you're right in that, you know, there could be, you know, even though China's economy is recovering, you know, to a certain extent, there, you know, there could be pressure from within the country to focus on China's economic recovery first. And I think we've already seen sort of a dip in Chinese uh, investments abroad. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative is, is you know, it's, it's unlikely that China is going to be greenlighting any new multi-billion dollar projects abroad. And, mm. and I think there could be pressure from within China to sort of focus on the home front first before right. extending... Um, uh, you know, additional loans to, to foreign governments um, and, and, and continue to extend China's presence in that regard. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen. Of course, China is not a democratic state, so you're not going to have the same sort of bottom-up pressures that you would have in an, in an electoral system. But it's possible that if there is enough discontent within the party or within, you know, society at large, it might, you know, the government might see it as, see it, you know, um, prudently, uh, you know, um, 
you know, restrict some of its international interactions. But, you know, we'll have to wait to wait and see. I mean, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge with the pandemic. Of course. Um, yet. And, and I think that, you know, we, we really won't know till the end of the decade, I think, how mm. all of this, um, you know, pans out. Right. Well, Sebastian, let's talk about your book. Your book is called In the Dragon's Shadow, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Tell us a little bit. What does that mean by the title? Why did you want to... A name your book in that way, in the um, dragon's shadow? Like, what are you trying to say? Well, I think that the region is, you know, is overshadowed by the size of China's economy, which has grown, you know, at, at an absolutely stupendous rate over the past three decades. Um, you know, previously, um, China was a sort of menacing presence. I mean, what I'm saying, uh, during the Cold War, mm. China was a, you know... A, was perceived by many of the governments in the region as a menacing presence, as seeking to undermine the authority of their governments. But you know, it was it was a you know, it was relatively inward looking. Um, you know, in, in terms compared to today, um, and you know, I think that by choosing that title, I wanted to sort of uh, you know encapsulate in some way the you know the fact that China is sort of you know both. Um, Overshadows the region in terms of its size and power, but also sort of you know you know looms large and colors everything when it comes to these nations' foreign policy. I think China's the, the you know the number one foreign policy challenge that each of these nations will face in the coming century, which is partly why I, I my I, my subtitle refers to the Chinese century. You know, I don't think China's power is going to be unchallenged, and I don't think we're going to be seeing the same sort of domination by China that the United States enjoyed in the latter half of the 20th century. But I do think that for Southeast Asia, China is the, pri the primary foreign policy challenge. And how they manage that will have you know, massive ramifications for each of them. Well, Sebastian, a couple of years ago, I came across another author. I'm not sure if you're familiar. His name is Steve Moser. Now, he wrote a book. It's called China's Bullying. Or Asia's Bully. I think that's the name book. It's called Asia's Bully by Steve Mosier. Now, when I was talking to him, he was in the book. He lay out specific ways that throughout the centuries and since the founding in 1949, that China has been using its own strategies where people try to manipulate this foreign relations gradually. So in other words, coming to today, when we see One Bell, One Road Initiative, some people call it is a debt trap. So in other words, China is trying to use this way to gain more territory or to have this territorial partnership. But meanwhile, but we don't call it that way. We just call it One Belt, One Road Initiative. So a lot more smaller countries, they could easily fall into the debt and they are going to repay China by giving them more land or resources or opportunities or whatever you call it. Do you think that way... I mean, do you, again, if you say China, it's, it's economically speaking, it's an outpouring, it's grown tremendously in Southeast Asia, but meanwhile, it could be a trap for, so the, for the smaller countries. What do you take on that? Well, I, th I certainly think there's a tendency, there's a tendency in the United States and other parts of the West at the moment um, to paint Chinese initiatives in the most negative terms possible. And I think this idea of debt trap diplomacy, which was actually coined by an Indian strategist, mm. um, you know, falls into that category, as does Mosher's book, I think, uh, which I haven't read, but I, I've read I've read extracts from, and, and mm. it seems, again, it's sort of about 
painting China as sort of this, um, if the U.S. is viewed as an exceptional nation in a positive sense, then China is viewed as an exceptional nation in a negative one. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, people that study the Belt and Road, uh, you know, have, have shown that this idea of debt trap diplomacy is, is slightly misplaced. Um, I mean, what debt trap diplomacy alleges is that China has a purposeful strategy for over-indebting small nations and, and forcing them to compromise their sovereignty and, and mm. cede um, land or resources or strategic assets to the Chinese government. Um, but people who have studied the Belt and Road Initiative have found that you know the real picture is a lot more messy. You have a huge amount of um, complexity on the on the Chinese side about which particular state-owned enterprises and, and, and local interests are seeking to use the Belt and Road Initiative to advance their own interests. You have recipient governments engaging with the BRI in very mm. creative ways, using it for their own purposes, very often suggesting projects to the Chinese government that are not economically viable necessarily and taking advantage to a certain extent of the Chinese government's willingness to open its purse strings. Um, so I think you know the real picture is a lot more complex. Now, does debt pose a... You know, a, you know, a risk to small developing nations, of course. Um, and I think that nations, you know, the, the most obvious example in Southeast Asia is Laos, which, since COVID nineteen, is you know, um, slowed down its economic growth, has been forced to sign over a majority control of its state electricity grid to a Chinese state-owned company mm. uh, because it's unable to pay back um, to service the debt on loans that it's taken out recently. And so there are, you know, debt has always been. Um, something that has posed nations in the global south with huge challenges. But I also think that, you know, you, we saw a generation ago, we saw parallel, um, uh, you know, risks um, in a lot of parts of, of the global south from the IMF and the World Bank and the conditions that they attached to their loans, which had to do with, you know, neoliberal reform and structural adjustment and so forth. So, you know, th th these have always been um, the risks of taking on debt from anyone. Um, but I think that in general, the, the debt trap diplomacy meme simplifies a very complex picture. And I think it's mostly, you know, it, it's mostly a, um, you know, a, a rhetorical um, strategy for, um, you know, people that want to paint um, the Chinese initiatives in the most negative way possible. Mm. But no, of course, you know, debt is, it, it does pose huge risks. And I think that it's, it behooves small nations to think very carefully before they take large amounts of um, financing from Chinese mm. state banks. Mm. Well, Sebastian, one more question before letting you go is, looking ahead, people are still looking at this bilateral relations between China and America. Because we know that within six days, Donald Trump is going to leave the White House. And Biden has to really put this China agenda on the table because, hey, listen, this is the whole world has been expecting regarding these two large nations. How they are going to deal with each other in the year of 2021, are they going to continue to battle, or they're going to have this cool-down period before the fire comes up again? So from your perspective, very briefly, Sebastian, how do you think that China, from this Chinese perspective, need to prepare itself for this new administration? Again, we're looking at this Xi Jinping and Joe Biden it's a completely different personality uh, compared with Trump. How do you think China should prepare itself in dealing with upcoming administration in terms of bring this conversation, bring the dialogue back on the table? 
Well, I think that the Chinese government should expect a continuation in the you know the the the, the broad um, strategic shift we've seen in the United States. Um, the, the perception of China um, as a competitor and as a rival. Um, I think that you know even though Donald Trump, you know, in some ways, you know, was an outlier. I do think, um, and and Trump in some strange way catalyzed a re. Um, reassessment of American China policy. Um, but I do think that, you know, what is striking about the, the, the negative turn against China is the extent to which it is a bipartisan turn. Mm. Um, you, know, you know, an increased suspicion of China and its motives and, and a uh, determination to push back against it, um, it spans the American political spectrum from left to right. And I think that we're likely to see that continue under Joe Biden. Um, from what some of his appointees have said so far, it's also likely that there is going to be more scope for um, cooperation on, on, on issues like climate change. Now, but, but the question is to what extent those can be decoupled from mm. uh, the broad, you know, areas where there are more tensions. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know it, it remains to be seen how the United States will manage that balance. Um, if it's describing China as a force for you know, bad in the world and, you know, a nation that's seeking to, you know, that's got its sights set on, on global domination, you know, and then turns around and says, oh, we want to cooperate with you on X, Y, and Z, you know, they might find that the Chinese leadership doesn't want to talk to them. And so it's going to be very difficult in, in how the U.S. manages this um, and, and how it sort of frames um, competition with China, whether sort of in starkly ideological terms or whether in more sort of, you know, um, you know, uh, more more pragmatic realist terms. Um, we'll have to wait and see, but I don't mm. think that China can expect a sort of return to the status quo ante um, of the Obama years. Even though there are a lot of Obama appointees in you know the uh, incoming Biden administration. Mm. Well, Sebastian Strangel, it's an in journalist and author focusing on Southeast Asia and currently works as Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat. And also he's the author of the latest book in the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Sebastian, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Mengfei.